It's episode 43 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Fien. Today on the show is Andrew Betts. He's the Principal Developer Advocate at Fastly and a member of the World Wide Web Consortium's Technical Architecture Group. We're here to discuss Google's accelerated mobile pages, also known as AMP. What are they for? Is it wise to use them? And could they actually be a threat, not just to the open web, but to our society overall? Andrew, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. Um, the World Wide Web Consortium's Technical Architecture Group sounds very fancy. Uh, <laughs> what, is, what is that, and, uh, and what do you do for them? Well, the W3C has uh, a lot of working groups that work on individual specifications, the, the features that make up the web platform. Mm-hmm. And it also has a couple of uh, sort of umbrella groups that work across the whole platform. And one of those is the technical architecture group. And our, our role is to uh, steward or look after, I suppose, in a way, the, the overall architecture of the web. So when new features are proposed, there will be a group of specialists who will uh, absorb themselves in that feature. Uh, but then they're going to want feedback from people who are looking broadly at the entire platform. Right. So when they want that, they will uh, submit a design review request to the tag and, and we will give them that feedback. And so the, the group is made up of, of people with a, a broad spectrum of, of expertise and knowledge from across implementers, uh, you know, publishers, developers, um, all kinds of, of different constituencies that make up the web community. Interesting, interesting. Now, I did work with the W3C 20 years ago, even maybe even longer. Uh, it was the very first CSS um, specification that was being kind of hashed out uh, post like HTML oh, okay. 3.2 or something like that. Uh, we were working on wow. uh, this, this <laughs> idea of like extracting style into this separate thing. And um, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, a long time ago. We actually uh, have um, we have two members of the tag who are, who are CSS experts, and um, you know, right now we're talking about Houdini, um, you know, as the, as the next phase in in development of style, and you know that that it's a, it's a good example of why we need people who have these different yeah. areas of expertise. Because for me, uh, you know, Houdini is is black magic. I, I think it's amazing, um, and I'm very glad there are people who understand it better than I do. I, I haven't. I haven't. I'm looking it up on the web right now. Houdini demystifying CSS. T- uh, what, tell me a little bit about that. This is intriguing. To me. Oh, okay. I, I have not been paying attention to this, the cutting edge standards here. But um, so Houdini is is a, a mechanism for essentially opening up browser style to developers. So, mm. um, you know, if you, if you felt like there was something missing from CSS, uh, up to this point, you've really been able to do nothing about that. Um, Houdini gives you the ability to essentially define new ways of uh, applying style on the web. So you could write, for example, a paint worklet that can uh, create an entirely new way of styling something. Um, and I'm explaining this very badly because this is not my area, but, you know, it's it, it's an example of, you know, how the web is becoming so sophisticated that, uh, you know, there, there are separate camps within the platform of people who really care very deeply about uh, one particular technology. And I think uh, CSS is, is getting to that level of, of sophistication, yeah. uh, along with other things like, you know, web VR as well. For example, you know, I know so many of my friends are getting into web VR and I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is, there's a lot to this and, and I'm barely scratching the surface with my own knowledge. Oh, I was reading about WebAssembly. 
and uh, you know, doing like actually like compiled binaries uh, in the sandbox way for the web. And I'm like, oh my god, that could fundamentally change everything. Literally, um, it's wild how much stuff uh, is being developed. This is sort of the next generation of of things. It's it's, it's really impressive. All right, I'm gonna find. Somebody who knows a lot about Houdini to come on the a future episode of this program. We'll get into that. That's yeah, really you definitely cool. should. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely sure. should. I can I can recommend you some people to talk to. So I'll, I'll send you some details afterwards. That sounds great. Cool. Um, look at that. We're doing business right here. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so we were going to talk a little bit about uh, what Google is doing with AMP, um, how that's all coming together. Uh, some a little bit of controversy and just just a whole bunch of thoughts around that. And I know you have been sort of following this a lot, um, kind of outspoken about it. And I would just love to sort of get into that a little bit. Sure. Uh, there's an awful lot to unpack here. So uh, where do we start? I think at the at the very basic level, so so um, you know, sort of what it what it is. My my basic sort of experience with it is that I, I go to Google, I do a search for something that's generally kind of in the news. So if you do a search for like I don't know Trump, it's there's a good idea that in the last twenty minutes he's done something very newsworthy, and there will be <laughs> of course. there will be a bunch of results. There will be two kinds of results at the top. Uh, one look like regular web results, but they have a little lightning bolt in front of them. Uh, and then there's this like, um, these little boxes of news stories that look like they've been surfaced that are sort of a carousel. You can kind of swipe through them and things like that. And when you tap on those, it's instant. Like the page is just there, literally just like blinks on. And it's, um, and, um, and that to me is sort of like the, the user experience, or at least the first half of the user experience of using AMP. Does that sound about right? Okay. It, it does. And I think you, you've captured it pretty well. Uh, from a user, user perspective, it, it solves a very uh, pertinent problem, which is that the web is very slow. And, uh, you know, we, there are these graphs that, you know, you see re- re-released regularly that show how big web pages are getting. And, and it, it's still a new story, you know, year after year, because they just keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, and whilst people in uh, you know, who are lucky enough to to live in developed countries in in big cities with fast internet connections, or they have fast connections on their mobile device. Um, they find that that's fine, and they appreciate the features and the the high fidelity images and the video that they're getting. Um, that's not that's not the global web. You know, there's right. people for whom um, Facebook is the web. You know, they 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 consume all their content within one platform because. It's uh, zero rated by their mobile operator or, um, you know, they know that it's a trusted environment. Everything's going to be fast, preloaded, uh, optimized. So they're going to spend less money. Um, and that's important for a large constituency of people who are coming to the web for the first time. Right. So something needed to be done. You know, uh, advertising is bloating the web as well. Uh, you've got increasing numbers of people running ad blockers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, depending on which country you look at, it's the rate is somewhere between 5 and 40%. Um, so it's definitely a problem that needs solving. Um, and, I, you know, I appreciate that Google have put such an effort into trying to solve it. And this is similar to what sort of Apple is doing with Apple News and, and Facebook has instant stories, I think they're called, or something like that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So, there's, so there's a few people or a few organizations working on this. Yeah, exactly. So the principle is that you have a platform, you know, so, some uh, some destination that users are attracted to. Um, and, you know, obviously Apple has one, Google has one, Facebook has one. And these platform owners have this 
a great incentive to provide not only a good user experience for the people who are on the platform, but also to keep the users on the platform there as much go. as possible. Yeah, right. So I think, uh, you know, there, there, there's there's kind of a, a couple of sides to this, and there's always two sides to these, these, uh, uh, these debates. Um, so, you know, a critic... Uh, an unfair critic could look at AMP and say, well, this is just Google monopolizing the web. You know, they want to keep people uh, on their platform as much as much as possible. And so when you tap those instant uh, beautiful AMP links that load instantaneously, you're actually not visiting the publisher that, that produced that content. You're staying within Google.com. Right. Um, and that is one of the controversial aspects of it, as well as the fact that in order for the publisher to get into this super premium ranking position in search they have to adopt this technology and there's no other way of doing it right um and so you know at a basic level those are the criticisms that people lay at the door of amp but you know i'm, I'm not the sort of person to say that you know amp is evil i think uh it is a group of dedicated and uh well-meaning um and highly experienced engineers who are trying to solve a genuinely uh pressing problem that is facing the web yeah, yeah, no, I believe that too. Um, it's it's helpful for uh, for me at least to have uh, to, to get a little bit of an understanding of how it all works, right? There there seems to be sort of three parts to what Google is trying to do with AMP. One is a kind of a constrained set of almost alternate tags for HTML that you use uh, that, yeah. that tend to be kind of very much optimized for uh, for performance. Uh, and then there's, uh, like a set of, of rules around what you can and can't do with like linking and JavaScript and things like that. And then the, the, the thing that I think draws the most controversy, which is the AMP cache, which is that all of these pages then live on Google servers and are pre-rendered to get that sort of blazing speed. Um, but is, is the part where Google is like, yeah, like they all have to be inside of Google for us to be able to make it fast at all. Right. Is that, is that a kind of a fair overview? That is exactly it. Yes, and I, I guess I would add to that 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 some uh, website uh, authors would say that their content is fast anyway. You know, I, I used to work for the FT, the Financial Times out in London, um, and you know our compatriots at the Guardian as well. I know are very good at, at producing highly performant, modern, best practice websites, and you know to to be told, you know, the only way to produce a, a site that is fast is to use this specific framework is very limiting you know you you might well argue that your site is fast enough anyway um and so you know the the direct uh mapping of this carrot of high search ranking to this very specific technology um is problematic for a lot of people yeah yeah and and it's and it's problematic in that you really are kind of giving up your control over distribution is what it sounds to me like yes. right because yes. i see this all the time like i get people Oh, I'm in a Slack uh, chat and somebody sends a URL to something that they were reading online and it's like amp.google.com. Right, exactly. Right? So um, yeah, the, the yeah. URL problem is is something that that you know a lot of people get very upset about. And rightly so, because um, you know, there's there's sort of an obvious uh issue with this, there's a sort of visual issue. It's it's ugly, it's a very long URL, it obscures uh to some extent the original source of the content. We've had issues uh with uh, dis, well, I wouldn't say disreputable, but you know, uh, news providers that have a troublesome brand um, who maybe feel like their brand engenders mistrust in people who might read their content, um, who have actually shipped content with no branding on it uh, in an attempt to presumably 
make it seem like that content is coming from Google itself. So, you know, there's there's been instances recorded of that kind of thing. I've written some blog posts about that. And so there's this visual problem. The, the web is intrinsically tied to the URL, and the URL gives you some confidence, especially with TLS and HTTPS, um, that it's coming from some entity that you trust. There's a hidden aspect to this as well, which is that uh, a lot of the technology that runs the web is tied to this concept of an origin. So, you know, when you go to a site and it asks you, you know, is it okay to share your physical location with this website? Or this website wants to enable notifications, those really annoying ones that we've now started to see everywhere. Right. Um, all those permission requests and all the storage and all the cookies and, you know, everything that the browser remembers that is related to the site you're visiting is attached to the concept of an origin, which is the domain name of the site that you're visiting. So if you go to a page that isn't on that origin, then any permissions, any storage, anything that's attached to that site is not going to be attached to the correct origin. And, and from a, the perspective of, of, with my tag hat on, from the perspective of a, you know, a, a, someone who's very concerned about web architecture, that is a sort of ideological issue without. Yeah, I agree. I, and in fact, like, I think even at the, um, uh, you know, out there in the, the, the vast land of like people who don't care at all about any of the technology and just want to use the web for, you know, what, what they want to use the web for are still have this understanding that you look at the top of the browser and make sure that the little padlock is closed, right? Like, like there's this, right. no, there's this notion that like up there tells me where I am and that everything below here comes from there. And at that very basic level, we're, we're sort of breaking that with, with uh, technology like AMP, aren't we? Yeah. And I think uh, the argument from the AMP team would be that you've got to break things in order to figure out what the next stage of evolution is. You know, it's the mutation that comes before the, the iteration and the evolution and eventually the better solution. Um, right. I think those of us who feel uncomfortable with the way where AMP has gone is that, you know, you cause too much of a mess on the way. Um, and having come from a, you know, a news media background, I feel like, uh, it's, it's not, uh, really, uh, a pleasant experience for content creators to be put in the position of creating two copies of their content, you know, one in AMP format, one not in AMP format. It's adding a lot of work to, uh, an industry that is already under very high economic stress. Um, so Yes, you know, breaking things, moving fast and breaking things, to, to borrow a phrase, <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> uh, is sometimes the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, the, the disagreement here, I think, is over whether in this case it has gone too far and too fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, there's, a, there's a couple of more questions I have about that. But before we do that, I want to take a little break and um, thank one of our sponsors. Uh, this is a uh, new sponsor to the show. It is WeTransfer. So WeTransfer has uh, over 40 million people per month sending and receiving files to one another. There is no sign-in required. You simply upload, send, and get back the um, get back to making whatever it is you make. And since day one, WeTransfer has devoted 30% of their ad space to showcasing creative people from around the world. And that's musicians and photographers and illustrators and even podcasters like us. So in that spirit, they asked me to skip the rest of the 60-second ad and get right back to the show, showing you just how fast they are. So, wetransfer.com, you make WeTransfer. Thanks to them for supporting Presentable and the Relay FM network. Okay, yeah, so um, you were sort of raising, I think, kind of two 
things here with that. Um, and one of them I really wanted to get into was what, what is the problem we're really trying to solve here? I understand like Google is proposing a way and, and frankly, if I, if I think hard enough about that, their, their answer is, well, wouldn't it be better if all of the web were just inside of Google? Um, which I th- we can talk about in a little bit because I have some thoughts around that too. But like, what problem are we trying to solve with performance on the web? The, uh, it feels like uh, the web in general and media companies specifically um, have gotten, uh, I don't know, uh, everything, like, like we were saying, feels so heavy, so many frameworks, uh, so much stuff being included in every page. Uh, what would be an idealized solution for this? Well, uh, you're right. Absolutely. The, the, the challenge is that it's a race to the bottom to some extent. You know, if one publisher does something, then another publisher feels they have to do the same thing in order to keep up. Uh, you know, I, I saw a case study yesterday of a publisher that had added some third party script to their page that was adding a two second delay to every page load. Um, but it made them a million dollars a year. So <laughs> wait, wait I don't quite <laughs> understand that. Why, how did? <laughs> Uh, because it's you know it's a, it's a behavioral uh, retargeting um, system. Oh, so you know oh, you, you. Oh, I see what you're saying. It, it, it you're, was doing work, and it took two seconds. I, I oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's doing some you know by some definition useful work, um, which is making the, the the publisher a lot of money. Um, at the same time, mm. it's it's slowing down the the site. And it, this is a particularly egregious example. It's something which is you know a very tangible amount of time just for that one thing. Right. Um, but you know. It, in many cases, it's it's a harder uh, it's a harder challenge to actually distill the cost of an individual decision. You know, an individual decision might be negli- have negligible performance implication, um, but taken together, this is a kind of death by a thousand cuts kind of situation. Yeah, and you see these sites just gradually growing and growing and growing and growing to the point where you know you get these egregious examples of sites that are over 100 megabytes for one page or or you know whatever so it, there's definitely a need for uh, a restructuring of incentives to some extent to make it uh to make it uh profitable for uh creators to think about performance um and i think one of the things the amp team would would uh, uh would put forward as a, as an argument for their their solution is that it provides engineers with a pushback against the business. Engineers who work for these these content creators can say, "Oh no, we can't do that because it's not allowed in AMP, and if we don't do that, then we can't be in the carousel, and that's what you want." So it, it's it is powerful. It's it's a powerful restructuring of incentives, and I think there is general agreement that that kind of thing uh, works. Inter- um, interestingly, it <laughs> interestingly, it's not an argument for a better user experience. It's an argument for search engine optimization. Right. It's not, it's the, the, the argument is not if we get our pages to load instantly, we'll get more users. They'll be more engaged. Uh, and therefore there will be more ad impressions, right. As opposed to more impressions per user, the way we're doing now. But that's not the sure. argument at all. The argument is like, you want to be in the carousel. You want to be at the top of the search result. Like when I search for Trump, you want to be there. Right. Like, so it's, it is just distribution. Yeah. I, I think that is not, not an unreasonable representation of the, of the situation yet. You know, obviously there are creators who care passionately about their user experience and making sure that every user gets, uh, gets a great, has a great time on their site. Um, that said, I think that, uh, at a sufficiently large scale, uh, it has become a data exercise. It is about metrics. It is about, you know, does this increase engagement? If it increases engagement, it's in. If it doesn't, it's out. Um, and it becomes, 
it, it becomes very uh, uh, simple. You know, it's it's there's no uh, prevarication on this. You know, you 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 either move the needle or you don't move the needle. And I think you know, Facebook has become famous for being a kind of pure example of that. Um, uh, where you know you can you can ship almost anything you like, and if it works, it's great. If it doesn't work, it's gone. Right. Well, yeah, we've we've had that conversation a few times on this on this podcast around the sort of um, the designers playing the role of of sort of ethicists, you know, having to having right. to be the ones that hold that. Like, wait a minute, who's talk, who's thinking about the impact this will have on users over time? Um, and uh, and that's just my you know my bias is background in design. I've, I find pl- plenty of engineers that have that similar sort of uh, perspective and set of values that bring to the table. But it's a difficult conversation with the people who um, who are representing the business interests. It always is, isn't it? Of course. And and I think actually the solution to this is uh, is to try and break this problem down into individual parts. So the 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 AMP solution is actually a number of different things. Uh, it's pre-rendering because when you go to the search result page, Google is actually loading those AMP pages in the background right, before right. you before you even touch on them. Um, so in order to do that, they need to do what they call a privacy preserving pre-render. Um, which is to say they want to load your website content, but they don't want you to know that they've done that because the user hasn't yet declared an intention to visit the site. Ah. And I think this is a, this is a reasonably laudable objective. You know, you, you, uh, you want the website to load instantly. Therefore it has to have already been loaded, but the website operators should not know that the user is just looking at a link to their page and hasn't clicked it yet. They don't get to count that impression. So exactly. Ah, so, so that's, that's a difficult thing to do. Another uh, difficult angle on this is that if you if you pre-render a site, you know you put it in a background tab, it's hidden. What if just loading the page does something like it starts auto-playing video or it records some kind of uh, uh, credit on the user's account? Let's say it's a it's a, a paywalled site, and if I click that link, it's going to cost me some one credit or one dollar or something. Then that's something that we don't want to happen until I've actually declared an intention to click that link by clicking it. Um, the pre-render should not actually do any of those things, right? So this is the problem that, that we found previously when we had this, this mechanism built into the web. We had this thing called link rel pre-render and it got removed from the platform because it caused all of these problems. Um, so AMP is, a, is attempting to do a, a more sophisticated version of this where you have a site that is safe uh, to pre-render. So pre-rendering is part of that. And, and the solution to this is, that's proposed is something called web packaging. Web packaging would allow a website to uh, take all of the resources that make up the website, put them in what amounts to a zip file, sign the zip file so that we know that that package was created by that website, and then ship it off to a platform like Google that can then send it to whoever they like, and it can pretend to be from the original origin. So this is a you know it's it's a it's a very complicated set of technologies and it is going to take a while to standardize but the prospect is that this would enable this privacy preserving pre-render to happen without using AMP. Is the 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 set of tags uh, that is used in AMP it is uh, is there any need for that in the sort of standards process or are they just representations of existing tags? Uh, and used to disambiguate so that they can, you know, do their magic in their cache. So this is the the, the web components like AMP image and AMP pad and that right. kind of thing. Right. Um, so I, I think the the reason that these these new elements have been created is because the AMP team want to add 
better uh, rendering behavior to elements that would otherwise have some sort of problematic elements to them. So for example, take image. It's a very simple example. Images on the web, if they do not have a width and a height set, then the browser will initially render the image to be zero size. And then when it loads the image, it will ping that container out to the, the size of the image. So you, what you'll see is the page reorganizing itself as the images load. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you've seen loads of pages that do that. Mm -hmm. um, that's really only something that we see on the web. We don't see that in native apps. You don't open like a, an app on your, on your phone um, and see content just sort of rearranging and rejigging itself as the stuff loads. That's right. something that we see only on the web and it's a really negative user experience. So the AMP team created this um, image element and one of the, the restrictions on this element is that it has to have a declared width and height. And if you don't have one, it's just not a, not a valid use of the tag. Interesting. So it's, it's adding these behaviors that we really should have anyway. And actually that, that brings me to a, a sort of a second technology that Google are trying to standardize um, which would help to solve this problem in a standard, a standard way, um, which is called feature policy. And using feature policy, a web author would be able to say, actually, if my images don't have a width and height, then don't allow them to size automatically to their content. Um, so we can actually start to think about how we can solve this in a standard way without using AMP. Uh, 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 uh. So one of the f fundamental principles of the web from the beginning was that the browser should do everything it possibly can to try to display something, right? Like take, right. right? And that to me, like in, in the first, certainly in the first decade of the web uh, was uh, what I would attribute a lot, of, a lot of its success to. And that it was very easy for people to get started. You could just like learn a few basic tags and frankly, you could use them wrong. And it would still kind of work and people could get their stuff up. And it was all yep. about like getting as much stuff as we could, as simply as we possibly could. And, um, and I thought that was great. And it's, I think still a wonderful quality. And those pages still render. Like you can go back to pages from 1994 and they'll still show up in a browser and try to do something. And you could still probably read them and maybe see some of the pictures. Right. So, yeah. um, so I, to me, that's one of the fundamentally like native qualities of the web that I attribute its success to. However, what it sounds like is then you take this, these, these, uh, like platonic ideal of the tags, like they should have all the attributes and that's good for performance and that makes your pages better. And essentially by putting them in a version, like the shadow version of the web that has some governance to it, I guess I would call what Google is doing, you know, like they're just not going to show the image if it doesn't have the tag. So it's making a decision and then putting more constraint on the, uh, on the, uh, on HTML. And yeah. on authors to be successful, they essentially have to debug their pages to get them to work at all so Absolutely. that they will be faster. So I, to me, that I, I, I kind of see how that makes sense, but it's a different version of the web. And to me, like if you have the AMP image tag or the image tag, the standard HTML image tag done exactly right, height and width, perfect, and all the other attributes that it needs, is it really a difference? Like, could you make pages that render just as fastly, just as quickly <laughs> using, uh, yeah, there, that's a nice slip. There you go. A little, little more. <laughs> anyway, uh, just as quickly using standard HTML as you could with a, with an AMP page. Right. So, uh, yes, then that's a, that's a really good point. It, it, there are people, particularly people who, who, who look at AMP and, and, you know, turn the nose up at it, who will make that argument that, you know, I can make a page that's just as fast as AMP. And the only reason that AMP pages are faster is because they're pre-rendered. Right. Um, and I have a lot of time for that argument. I think the, 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 where it falls down is that there are 
it, the number of developers who can do that and have the sufficient expertise to get there is the minority. Whether that's for reasons of lack of expertise or the nature of their market or the nature of their business environment and the pressures put on them by their company, um, AMP helps to provide them with a framework that gets them there faster. Um, but yes, it's absolutely possible to create pages that are as fast as AMP without using AMP. It is also possible to run your own cache, isn't it? Oh, so that's, yeah, that, that's difficult. Uh, <laughs> you can run a, an AMP cache. Um, I haven't looked into this in great detail, but my understanding is that uh, there's only one current third-party operated AMP cache, and I believe it backs onto the to Google's AMP cache. So mm. it's, it's really a, a way for, in, in theory, you could have caches that are owned and operated by website uh, owners that would therefore use the correct domain, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but still have to go through a Google-validated um, optimization and validation process. So Google wants to make sure that if something yeah. appears in the carousel, it is valid AMP, yeah. and they want to be the ones to do that. Um, which on their platform is fair enough, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yes, on their platform. I'm just wondering if, like, uh, well, let's keep using the Financial Times as an example. You go to the Financial Times homepage, and they could essentially be doing AMP caching behind the scenes for all the top headlines, right? And so, so that you do literally get that instant experience of tapping through to to each one. I mean, you could these yeah. are all open source and ostensibly on some kind of path to standardization, so you could essentially replicate it itself. You know, I mean, absolutely. And many, many sites have been doing this for a long time. In fact, Amazon is a great example of this where, you know, if you're browsing Amazon products uh, listings, you know, you're, as you've searched for some products and you've got some search results. Uh, when you click next on the yeah. bottom of the search results, the next set of search results load almost instantaneously. And that's because it's a linear flow, right? You know, it's likely that the next thing you're going to do is press next. So they preload it. Um, and they've been doing that for years, I, I think. Um, I, I think the. Uh, the the thing about preloading and pre-rendering is 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 an important part of AMP, um, but it, it's it's kind of the icing on the cake, really. You know, making pages faster, making them leaner, um, and uh, you know, removing all of the the bad practices. Actually, for me, is the the larger problem. And then pre-rendering is like you know, it'd be nice if we if we had a pre-rendering mechanism on the web. Right, right. Um, and there are tools to help with that kind of stuff. Isn't there? Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. But doesn't Google make one called, is it Lighthouse? Is that right? Yeah, so Lighthouse addresses the uh, the bloat and bad practices part of right. the problem by essentially analyzing your site and saying, you know, you need to change this and change this. And you're yeah. using all these third parties, which you shouldn't be. And this thing here is taking a long time to load. And, you know, it gives you a full kind of really sophisticated audit for um you know, things you can improve on your site. And following Lighthouse's recommendations is a really good way of, of getting um, a lot of the performance benefits that AMP would, would sort of um, make you do anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, almost like a validator, you know, like the... the uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. you know, we've, we've, had, we've had W3C, you know, was the original validators that would tell you that your site was like valid HTML. And I think, um, you know, over the years, you've realized that there's almost no value to doing that. Because, you know, like you said earlier on in the call, um, uh, it has always been the case that browsers have tried to do their best to give you something useful. And so it's almost never been of value to have perfectly validated code. It was a decade ago or, or, or even longer when having validated code was kind of a, like an, a political statement, like an act of defiance against the browser vendors. Um, but that was a long time ago when, when many of the developers on 
that are making web stuff today weren't hadn't even started their careers yet. But, uh, right. but there, there was a time when we were very concerned that um, the entire web would turn into a Microsoft product and or or a Netscape product. And so, saying there's this there's this other path, this middle path. And it is, uh, it is more virtuous, and we're going to follow that by the strict adherence to the letter of the standards. And, and I think that's where all the, val- like the, the, the notion of validation, where you would, like, you would put a little icon on your website that if you clicked it, actually pumped the code of your website through an HTML validator and showed the results saying, look, this is valid code, and I'm not playing by the rules of these big companies. Interestingly, like, <laughs> has some, has some uh, mirrored uh, effect of, of what's happening today with some of these. So. Um, the idea of these walled gardens and and trying to take over the the user experience of the uh, of the web or the internet at all. But well, so let me bring this back to feature policy for a second because feature policy is is something I'm very excited about personally, and it is a it will be a way essentially for a platform potentially, um, you know, let's say Facebook or Google to to say to content creators, um, you know, we will give you some kind of carrot, whether that's you know, uh, pre-rendering or uh, premium placement in search or whatever, if you do certain things with your content. And today that might be AMP or it might be proprietary technology like instant articles, but in the future it could be expressed in terms of these feature policies, which are, um, you know, voluntary, in quotes, voluntary uh, uh, restrictions that you place upon yourself when you create a web page. So you might say, my web page does not have any auto-playing video. Now, Feature policy is a way not only to express that in a machine-readable way, but it's mm. also a way to tell the browser that, you know what, you can enforce this. So if I say that my, my website doesn't have any auto-playing video and I try to auto-play a video, just, just, just don't do that. Just don't let me do that. Um, so I'm really excited about what feature policy has as, as a potential to improve, uh, to not only uh, provide uh, content creators with a way to police themselves, but to give platforms this enormously valuable carrot that they can offer people if they opt into that. Interesting. Feature policy, is that, uh, is that a set of specifications that the W3C is working on right now? Yeah, so it's uh, a, okay. it, it's a yeah. framework. Um, and the, the, the policies themselves are things that we've developed separately. The, the, the principle of how feature policy works is, is now pretty mature. Cool. Cool. Um, well, uh, put some links uh, to that in the show notes as well. That'd be interesting. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk more sort of at the kind of almost societal level of uh, the potential for abuse with things like Google AMP. You mentioned that a little bit earlier, uh, essentially this idea of, uh, well, you know, fake news being packaged as something that r- resembles other sort of credible news sources. And again, with the like, with this little lightning bolt in front of it on a search results page is almost like the blue check mark on Twitter, which people uh, interpret as a sense of um, like validation. Like, well, that's not quite the right word, but like th- that uh, approval, let's say, right? That, mm-hmm. that this is like a, a content that Google is presenting and it's got their URL and it's got the check mark and maybe it shows up in a carousel and all that kind of stuff um, where it can be you know, very much like foreign state propaganda showing up in that <laughs> context, right? Like to, yes. to pick a, a kind of an extreme example, but, but that's one of the interesting things is that with so much normalization of these technologies and design that the, the clues that we used to use for, is this trustable content are getting really blurry. Yes, I agree. And, uh, the, the meaning that we as users attach to these, these badges, um, is really problematic. And I think platforms have, have very 
belatedly woken up to this, you know, Twitter with uh, their recent uh, review of, of how they decide who gets verified and who doesn't, for right. example. Um, and yeah, the lightning bolt is uh, potentially open to some extent to to that kind of problem as well. Uh, I actually spoke to multi-tech lead of um, AMP this morning and uh, he was talking about, you know, how difficult it is to understand uh, at what point does uh, you know, performance trump relevance. Um, and, you know, in theory, it doesn't at all, right? Because I'd much rather read something oh, that yeah. loads very slowly and is accurate than something that loads very quickly and is rubbish. Um, but his argument is that if sufficient amounts of content can be persuaded to uh, be fast, then within that, uh, that corpus of fast content, you will have good content. Hmm. And so then you can apply your relevance engine over the, the fast stuff and still get stuff that's good. So you will end up with stuff that's good and fast uh, that, that, that rises to the surface. And I think there's, there's a lot to that argument. You know, obviously, if, if in an ideal world, that, that would work really well. There have been examples where that hasn't worked, for sure. Uh, like you say, where, um, you know, news sources that maybe uh, are not universally trusted uh, or you know have a trust problem <laughs> trust deficit yeah uh will lean on this behavior and we'll say okay well we might not benefit from uh, an algorithm that's purely about relevance but we are certainly going to be really fast yeah yeah but it is really a prioritization of speed over authenticity right to get uh, essentially privileged treatment for content just because of a set of adopted technologies yeah and do you do you do you go the other way do you say okay we'll use negative badging so just as in search results you'll sometimes see results with a thing that says this site may have been hacked if google has detected that there's some kind of phishing attempt going on on this site right you know you, you could equally have a, a label on the the result that says slow or yeah. expensive or something yeah um and you know would that act as an incentive um how would you determine that would you say it's a you know bottom 10 percent of sites um what if all the sites in the search results are slow <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's a very difficult problem to address, you know, both in terms of what the the psychological uh, uh, impact is, you know, how motivating is it? What what does what actual behavioral change does it cause in content creators? Yeah, um, because sometimes you'll create you'll you'll make a change and you'll actually cause a behavioral change that is different to the one that you expected. Of course, um, as people work out, you know, they can actually work around it in a different way. I think there's a good example of this uh, with, the, with the Chrome browser, which is going to start showing like a blocking warning for any site that isn't on HTTPS, right? That's right. It, it has either happened or is coming in in the next few months, I believe. Um, and there is an argument saying that that is going to take a lot of the valuable yet untended content of the web and make it essentially um, inaccessible because people are going to see that and hit the back button. Right. So there's all this, like these great old websites that have all of this content from the early days of the web. They're never going to, those web servers are not going to get updated. There's no security problem with them. There's nothing interactive about them. And suddenly all of that, uh, all of that content has this scary warning message in front of it. So that might be one of the examples. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can definitely, I, 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 I take that argument. I think there's, there's, there's a, there's value to that. Equally, I would say that, um, a lot of effort has gone into that. The, that badging and the and understanding what they're communicating with that badging um because 
ultimately, you know, you say there's no security problem with these sites, they're not secure, right? So, you know, if I load that site, there's nothing that's stopping any of the uh, the nodes that that content has passed through on the way to me from interfering with it, That's changing true. I, it, I was, uh, whatever the way they like. Yeah, I was a little glib with that. I, I agree. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, ideally, in an ideal world, we want the whole web to be secure so that we can ensure that that kind of thing is much more difficult to do. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of developments on the web that, that, that move in this direction, not just the, the move to make everything TLS, but also things like content security policy. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, referrer policies that start to re reduce the amount of, of information we leak when we link from one site to another. Right. So lots of different efforts in this area to, to help make the, the web more secure and more private and more uh, respectful of user um, data. Um, but, you know, you're right. There's, there's a whole web out there that, that has been being built over, up over the last 25 years. Um, and there's still value in it, and we yeah. certainly don't want to cut it off. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, new feature development on the web is so hard because, yeah. you know, we 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 have as a benchmark like a GeoCities site from 1999 or whenever GeoCities was around. <laughs> I'm not quite sure when that was, um, you know, and that site has to work, uh, and nothing we do can can break that existing old content. Yeah. And all of these new features are really just a set of prioritizations, right? With, with pros and cons on all sides. It's, you know, whether we're prioritizing speed or prioritizing security or prioritizing what we believe to be the truth. Yep. Yes. It's, it's all about making uh, it easy and making it valuable for people to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Andrew, this has been great. Um, I really appreciate your time and your perspective on all of this. Um, it sounds like you've been thinking really hard about this for quite a while. I will link to some of your writing in your sh in the show notes. There is also uh, ampletter.org, which I believe you had a hand in with some other people, which is sort of an open letter to the community saying, uh, uh, kind of articulating some of the issues around this uh, signed by many, many people. So um, I'll point people over there as well. Anywhere else? Yes, and and if I might just make a point about Amp Letter because the you know a lot has happened since uh, we wrote that, um, and the two primary complaints that we make in the letter are around the URL issue mm -hmm. and also about the uh, the hosting uh, rehosting of content. And uh, Google have, to their credit, made multiple announcements since that letter was written uh, that address or provide a path to addressing those concerns. No, that's great. Turns out a little bit of protesting might might be effective after all. That's wonderful. <laughs> I don't know how, how much of an impact it actually had or whether they were going to do it anyway, but I, I do think uh, it's definitely moving in the right direction. Well, keep resisting. It's good. All right. Bye. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, Andrew. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Bye-bye. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.